Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Ali. Ali, powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Ally, a membership-only community workspace for creators. Each location is a community curated powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Ally, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems for entrepreneurs. And now, on to my interview with Mike Boris. All the work and all the time and everything you put into it, and then stepping back and watching it go by in 30 seconds. If it's traditional commercial, it's just a great feeling. Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music, let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study they move, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. <laughs> Pod bless, and welcome to another episode of the Silent Giants Podcast, a podcast that highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at, at Silent Giants Podcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at, at Corey Cambridge. Our special guest is none other than music supervisor, producer, and creative strategist, Mike Boris. With over 20 years experience in the music and advertising industry, Mike has served as the head of music at prestigious creative ad agencies like Bates and McCann and Erickson. After his time with McCann in 2012, he struck out on his own and founded Jaded Melody, where he produces original music with top talent for branded content and storytelling. In our interview, I got to learn more about his upbringing, how he developed a strong love for music, how his passion for playing the drums led him to a career in the music industry, how his time as head of music at McCann and Erickson prepared him for entrepreneurship, and a whole lot more. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the music supervisor, producer, creative strategist, my friend, the silent giant, Mike Boris. Hi. Hey, what's up, Mike? How are you, man? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. First of all, shout out to Mark Fallows, man. Mark made this whole thing possible. Uh, Mark Fallows is the man. He is the man. Yes. We're actually going, I think, to Philadelphia on Thursday. Oh, yeah? He's, he has someone he's met through his podcast, The Impossible Network, mm-hmm. who is doing some type of uh, like music um, after school program. And so I'm going to come down and, and hang out with him and, and show some kids some music, some raps. Oh, right. Yeah, man. Wow. You're a popular dude. Am I? Yeah, we. I mean, we're obviously running very uh, close circles here. Yeah, yeah I think okay. so. Well, we have Mike Ladman. Who Mike Ladman. Just, I just had him on the podcast. Great guy. He's my last episode. We All just right. watched the Super Bowl together. Okay. Are you a sports fan? Um, I am. I'm a baseball fan. I like the Yankees. Okay, so I'm Forever. pissing you off right now with my hat. Not at all. <laughs> Unlike 
Unlike Met fans who hate the Yankees. No. Yankee fans like the Mets unless they're playing the Yankees. First of all, everyone hates the Yankees. <laughs> okay, so it's not just the Mets thing. Yeah, yeah. Look, yeah. always say in life, you don't want to be a Cincinnati Bengal. Okay? Okay. You have people, things that have no emotion mm-hmm. goes nowhere. So at least you have to love someone, you have to hate someone. Wow. You don't want to be a Cincinnati Bengal. Wow. Okay. So That's strong. Yeah, the Yankees are a great brand. Yeah, they are. Absolutely. <laughs> are, are you from New York? I am. What part? I grew up in the Poughkeepsie area. Poughkeepsie? That's like, uh, like an hour away from the city? Yeah, upstate. About oh, okay. an hour, hour and a half. Okay, okay. And uh, did, tell me about your, your early life growing up in Poughkeepsie. Oh, I got like? to remember my early life. <laughs> Damn, it's a lot of stuff. Um, I was born in a small town called Hopewell Junction. Okay. Which is, you know, part of the Poughkeepsie area. My dad was a dentist. Um, had a little small town practice up the block. He was home every day by like 5.05. <laughs> oh, exactly. On yeah. The oh, yeah. He'd leave work at 5 o'clock every day. It was really <laughs> nice. It was really, he enjoyed, he, he worked hard and played hard, my dad. How about your mom? My mom was, uh, well, when I was really little, she was, you know, she was a mom full time. And then when I went to school, I was the youngest. Um, she started school because she never went to college. Okay. So it's community college and then wound up going to Vassar and wound up going to Yale to get her PhD and working on her master's. So there's a pretty big value in education uh, in my family. How did your parents help shape who you became? Um, let's see. I got a lot from my dad in terms of a work ethic and how to treat people. I've learned so much from him. It's crazy. Um, my mom played piano and there was a lot of music that came from her side of the family. So there's a lot of, lot of music on that side, a lot of musicians, and it mostly came from there. Uh, she was into musical theater when I was a kid. She was doing community theater and such. And, and did you pick up on that? Obviously, you picked up on that, that, that music side from your mom. I did. I did. My, I have an older brother who was a guitar player, guitar and bass. Okay. And, uh, you know, you want to you be like your older siblings. So he was about six, he's six years older than me. And he was very into progressive rock when, you know, I was just discovering, you know, old Beatles records and listening to kids' music. So I got an early education and, you know, um, Yes and Gentle Giant and King Crimson. Mm. So I was listening to some pretty deep stuff when I was younger. You know, I, I had that same thing, too, as my Uncle Dre. My Uncle Dre was the first one to put me on to rap. Uh-huh. So it was like everything was like from Biggie. I think it's so important to have like that older influence, that older mentor to kind of groom you early in your music taste, uh-huh. you know, because otherwise you'd be listening to like some bubblegum stuff. But if you have like an older sibling who could put you on to the cool stuff, you right. can kind of gravitate towards that. Yeah, yeah. Did, did you ever want to, uh, uh, you know, pursue a career in music as a actual musician or singer? Oh, yeah, I was a drummer. I got into drums early on. So tell me about that. Like, How did you get into drums? Um, well, I used to bang on the table all the time. So my, my father signed me up for drum lessons. Okay. And <laughs> <laughs> that's basically how it went. And I was, uh, loved it right from the beginning. I took a break. That was probably like eight years old when I started. I took a break for a few years when I got, you know, a little bit more into sports and picked it back up when I was a young teenager. Who was your favorite drummer uh, growing up? Oh, goodness. Well, everybody says John Bonham, but I got, I got to really, uh, well, my first drum teacher I had um, was president of the Gene Krupa fan club. Okay. I think Gene Krupa? He, Gene Krupa. Yeah. I think he's, he was passed by them too. Wait, who's Gene Benny, Krupa? Benny Goodman, big band. Yes. Um, okay. Yes. 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 He yes. had his own group. He okay. Was, okay. Where, you know, it was always the, the drum battle with him and Buddy Rich back in the day, like in the, you know, in the 40s, 50s, probably 60s. Got um, it. 
Buddy Rich is just a chops monster, unbelievable. But, you know, Gene Krupa is finesse. To put a like a classical dance component to it, yeah. everybody used to compare, uh, you know, this is before my generation, but um, um, Fred Astaire oh, yeah. and Gene Kelly. Okay. okay. So um, Buddy Rich is Fred Astaire and Gene Krupa is Gene Kelly. Just kind of more like groove and feel and. So, so okay. definitely that. Of course, the, the drummers from the progressive rock stuff I loved grew up listening to um, Bill Bruford, mostly because I liked his snare drum. He had a really tight snare drum when everybody else was had this big dead thud. He had it cranked up really tight. Stuart Copeland did the same thing on all the police records. So it became a big of the big, the, the sound of a real ringy snare drum. Did so you see a band going? Yeah, in middle school on, I always had a band going on, cover band, something fun, doing some bad originals, but, you know. What was your first band? Wow. I got to think on that. Do you remember remember your first performance? Paradox. Paradox. Paradox was my first band. Did you come up with the the name? I did not. (laughs) (laughs) I played drums. Were you a founding (laughs) member? Sorry? Were you a founding member? Oh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What was your first performance like? First performance was uh, our guitar player's father was the principal of one of the middle schools. Okay. So we played one of their dances and we brought in flash bombs and <laughs> it's kind of inappropriate. You know, all these middle school kids dancing were like ninth graders in high school and all of a sudden. Oh, look, when I was in middle school, back, that, out ass, the place. back yeah. that ass up came up when I was in middle school. Yeah. Remember that song? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, you know. Okay. <laughs> times are a little different. You win. <laughs> That was, I always say that was like every middle schooler's first boner. Mm. Let's back that ass up. Yes. Like, I don't know what's happening right now, but uh, this song is doing it to me. Uh, so how did you get into, and tell me more about your musical journey, you know, going forward from starting in bands in the middle school and high school. Did you continue it? How far did you continue playing drums in bands? You know, I always played, always played and, and still do. Never at the professional level yeah. once I got into college. I went to college for communications. Okay. And... Uh, my concentrate was in broadcasting. It was a lot of production classes. So most of my buddies gravitated towards like sales and programming. I gravitated towards the production classes. Okay. And um, they also had a music department. I wasn't, I wasn't of the caliber to get into a conservatory of any kind okay. or a music school. I went to a traditional college, but I went to a school with a music department. So I got in and I was able to do a lot of playing. And where would you go to college? SUNY Oswego. Uh, where is that? Uh, Oswego, New York. Where where is that? Um, you go to Syracuse. Okay. You oh, so you're like you're you Canada. Swing, it's you Canada. swing to the left, and when you hit Lake Ontario, you're there. It's Canada. Pretty close. Okay, it's cold, Damn man. Cold. Damn cold. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look. It's two seasons up there: winter, winter. and Fourth of July. <laughs> well, look, that's the thing about New York. People say upstate. Upstate is so big. Yeah. You know, so it could be an hour outside of the city, or it could be Canada. Exactly. You know what I mean? So it, it depends a, where you're where you're looking up from. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. How was the college experience? My college experience was great. Had a lot of fun, met a lot of great people, a lot of great friends. Um I think the most I got my my education that I used practically mostly came from playing in the school's big band. Okay. Which was great because I had a I had to get thrown into reading music, which I didn't really do. I do I knew kind of the nuts and bolts, but I had to read charts. So I taught myself and kind of kind of caught up and you know listening to people and playing in a 25 piece big band was just a great educational experience mostly it taught me to listen hmm. so I, I i focus on that a lot a lot of what i've done my whole life is 
you know, listening. I believe you learn more from listening than you do from talking. Um, and also in music, too. And, uh, and I see, go, you, is it like a, like a liberal arts kind of town? Is it a big, like, music scene? Not a big music scene, but was no, there, like, a music scene there? There's no music scene outside the school. Okay. So, so once it's a very you, small school. Well, small town. Uh, how did you know you were going to make the, the transition um, from, you know, being in bands to, like, you know what, I want to have, like, a, a job in music? Did you always have that, that balance? No, I didn't. I always wanted to play, and I kind of never really thought about it too much. Um, there was also a radio production class that I took probably my junior year. And when I got in there, it was, you know, uh, it's four-track tape back then. Okay. Four-track tape. We're doing radio production, editing music, learning about radio as a business, and making radio commercials. And I started playing with some library music. And then I found out I was like, you know, had a really good talent for producing, editing, directing people, and getting it going. And then uh, I got a, got along really good with the professor, and I, I basically got the keys to the studio. Okay. I wound up being like a student supervisor and running it. So give the musicians the keys to a studio. Of course, on the weekend, I brought all my friends in, and we set up and started playing. And, you know, that's where I started fucking around with different microphones, placing things, tape slap, you know, whatever I could learn. So that that was kind of my foray into recording. And I really love that. So I kind of decided when I got out of school, I was going to get a job at a studio somewhere. So you you make the move out of school. Mm -hmm. And what was your first job out of school? My first job was at a studio called The Edison that's not in business anymore. Um, is it here I, in the city? Here in the city, okay. yeah. It was owned by National Recording Studios, and they were just rebuilding it, and they partnered with an engineer named Gary Chester. Okay. Because, you know, he had clients, they had the space, and it was a real healthy jingle industry then. So I wound up in this studio um, as an assistant and worked my way up to an assistant engineer where it was, you know, three sessions a day, singers, string sections, horns, just a phenomenal ecosystem of musicians who were session musicians and used to bounce around and play. And uh, it's, you know, something that doesn't exist the way it does. I mean, it, it's kind of gone now, but it's an ecosystem that, right. that existed then. And that, that was my graduate school. And Gary was just, he's still a good friend and he was just a phenomenal mentor. I learned so much from him. Now, you know, I've learned so much from this podcast from interviewing people who have worked in the jingle world. Mm-hmm. Have you ever, uh, you know, Scott Schreer? Sure. Scott's like the man. So I had the opportunity to interview him and his experience working with people in the jingle industry. Also a woman named uh, Mary Wood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've learned so much a lot about that jingle, the, the culture of music at that time and all the yeah. studios that were in New York. Um, what did you learn most from that first studio job and experience? Wow. I, I learned so much. I learned how to make things sound good. I learned, I'm going to go back to it. I learned how to listen. You listen to the room. You have to make music sound good. But in order to be, uh, I spent the first eight years or so of my career as an engineer. So in order to do that, you got to read the room. You got to listen to people. You know, you got to keep things flowing. You got to keep trust from everybody that you're driving. So I learned a lot about that listening. Number one, how things sound, you know, mic placement, um, mixing, you know, all the, all the traditional shit. But also a lot of it was listening to people. And listening to the producers that came in and how they dealt with problems and how they sold problems. And uh, also dealing with clients, mm-hmm. which is something schools don't teach anybody. So tell you us, learn, a, little, tell us a little bit about that, about like working with clients. 
well, you, you learn your art and your, you know, your art, learn your, your craft, you learn your art. And, you know, in order to make money, you've got to befriend and do a good job from the people who are paying. Those are the clients. So you got to have their trust or they're not going to want to work with you again. I, I think that every person who gets involved in music should have the opportunity. It's almost like people say that uh, every person should serve tables mm-hmm. in their life, right? It teaches Absolutely. you about people skills, about how to interact with people, how to be subservient to other people and serve. Mm-hmm. But I feel like engineering is that as well for musicians. Um, because I feel like being an engineer is like being a good barber. Your barber has great conversation. He's your boy. He's your friend. You trust him with your hair. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like the relationship that a woman has with her hairstylist is a very personal relationship. They're going to confess things in their life, like while they're sitting in that chair, but also have the trust that you're going to walk away as a better version of yourself, mm-hmm. you know? And people really entrust you with their music when they come to that engineer. Well, they do. It's, you know, a lot of the times music, it's, it's great because it's a business where clients become friends and friends become clients. Right. So right. That, that's really always, you know, nice and enjoyable to have everything mixed. But I'm going back to one one thing about I learned from Gary. I yeah. remember Gary teaching me early on. They called me Mikey back then. He said, Mikey, so, uh, you know, if you have a set of ears, you're going to find that soon enough. Either you're going to make it or you're not. And turn, pushing these buttons, a monkey can do it. You know, you got to learn what everything does. But you should watch me deal with clients because that's something nobody's ever going to teach you unless you experience and watch it. Uh, tell me about... Um, when you made the move out of college, making that move into the city, where'd you live? Oh, oh goodness. I moved with my then, then girlfriend to, uh, where'd we go? Upper West Side. It was just like doing, doing, we spent a year doing, um, sublets. So it was like every month, every two or three months bouncing around. Smart move. I did the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's good. I I couldn't afford any place. That's why. Yeah. I I couldn't afford it. I got my credit up and then I was like, now I'm good. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And it was kind of fun to get a feel for the city and different hoods and see what was what. What was the city like? Cause uh, what, what time period is this? It's the early nineties, very late eighties, early nineties. So what is New York city like uh, at at this time? Disney hadn't taken over Times Square yet. It was still very funky. Um, to, to put it mildly, yeah, funky, very funky. Yeah, <laughs> I could get anything I wanted or anybody I wanted on my way to work in the morning. Yes, right? when yes, I walked yes. up Forty Second Street, uh, and um, you know the Lower East Side, or not even the Lower East Side now, but the East Side. Basically, uh, um, you ever see the show Rent? Of course, yeah. That area, that area was very funky then. I used to hang there a lot down in Avenue A, Avenue B, Avenue B, Seventh okay. Street. It was, you know, it was pretty seedy back then. It was just still going through some development. Um, Brooklyn wasn't the Brooklyn it is now. Right, right. I, I'm all, but there's I also these, oh. I'm, I was going to say like the East Village was like the, the, the big cool music scene. Okay. Okay. Because I always uh, tend to ask people, you know, are you aware of the moment that you're living in when you're in it? You know, like, do you recognize oh. that New York City was, you know, it's, New York has changed so much since I've been here and I moved here in 2011. Um, but did you realize at that time, especially being a New Yorker from New York State, that, wow, this, these are very unique times where there's, you know, a, a hip hop scene that's thriving. There's a, a rock scene that's thriving. There's the jingle scene that's thriving. You had all these different studios. Was this kind of like a way of life or did you know, oh, this is pretty cool. I'm living in pretty cool times. I enjoyed what I was doing, but I did not appreciate it at the moment. Mm. Um, I think I've learned that later in life now where I can like spot something. It's like, holy shit, this is magic this project is magic or this thing you just want is magic. Let's, let's enjoy this. This Isn't going to last a long time. 
Uh, tell me about the, uh, speaking of magic, that first magic moment for you when you realize, oh, this is like pretty cool. I'm, I'm working on some pretty cool shit. I haven't yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's never happened. <laughs> well, 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 for me, it's, it's mostly looking, I get caught up in the moment. And then when I look back, you know, in hindsight, I say, wow, that was pretty cool. Um, there have been times working with a lot of artists. I mean, um, I've been fortunate to work with some really talented people over the years, especially in commercials, you know, so. Right. I want, I want to get into that world. Uh, like once you leave the, you know, you left the studio, like what, how did you get into the commercial? Oh, the so. The commercial advertising creative Gotcha. World. So the Edison was doing mostly jingles. They're doing a lot of movie soundtracks and Broadway soundtracks, but for the most part it was jingles because they're in the middle of Times Square, you know, close to what was Madison Avenue then. And um, one of our clients, uh, I'm sorry, the trend in the business then, because uh, when I first started, you still pretty much needed to go to an outside studio to record stuff. You know, laptops didn't exist yet. MIDI was fairly new. People were just starting to put studios um, in their jingle houses. Okay. So one of them, a place called JSM Music, put a really nice studio together. They, got a, they were booming with business and they needed some people. So I went over there as a house engineer. Okay. And- it was nonstop commercials. And again, there was a different ecosystem there. They were doing more things, not as much live, because to go to a studio like the Edison, it was there to record live musicians. Okay. If you're going to record something with synths and samples and you know drum machines, get into that world, you don't need to pay for that big room. So everybody's doing that in-house. And then bringing in who they needed to sweeten and singers. So uh, I went over there and I was there for about three years, loved it. And then when that ended... I got a job at an ad agency. And what was that agency? Uh, Ogilvy. Okay. So I went to Ogilvy for a year as a music producer. I mean, you know, truthfully, I took a little pay cut because I wanted to do something different. I saw Pro Tools going into laptops, and I saw all the writers kind of not really needing engineers as much. So Because they can engineer themselves? Yeah, yeah. Everybody's doing their own production. Okay. Nobody's paying for the outside studios, so I wasn't going to, you know, have the big thriving career as an engineer. It's, you know, what I saw down the line. And... uh I actually liked being the idea of being at the top of the food chain in terms of the ideas. Okay. Not in terms of the, it's not always in terms of the music, in terms of music production. So I went from being in the studio, you know, 16 hours a day to, you know, being in there, you know, a couple, four or five times a week looking at projects, but it's kind of cool walking in as the boss of the room. So, you know, one thing I wanted, I wanted to touch on too, I was watching a, a movie called a uh, 20 feet from stardom. Yeah. And, um, I had the privilege of interviewing Scott Schreer. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. And he was talking about the the era of the time with the the jingle industry was a lot of stars were, you know, or future, you know, famous folks were in that industry, you know, just trying to make it in their career, whether it was singing or playing instruments. Did you have the pleasure of working with anyone back during that era who later became a bigger star? Um, let's see. Mike, um... Michael Bolton used to sing a lot of commercials. Um, there were a lot of people that had done pretty well. 
Um, you know, Valerie Simpson, I certainly met a bunch of times singing and Vicki Sue Robinson was a singer who was around all the time. Um, yeah, and there's some great people making the rounds. Because speaking of that, of, of recognizing um, the moment, they, yeah. did you see that these people could become big stars in their own right? Like at that time? Yeah, I kind of, kind of everybody who walked into that stage had a lot of talent. It was kind of like, a, it was a given. So yeah, every once in a while, somebody would walk in that you knew they had something special when they were coming up. But okay. a lot of that industry changed too. Uh, how pretty so? quickly? Um, oh goodness, it's almost like the history of music and advertising. So let's see. When I first started at Ogilvy, um, licensing—I didn't know what it was. Somebody had me get a quote for a song, and I kind of, kind of had to figure, ask questions, and figure out how I went. I didn't go to school for music business. It just wasn't the trend. It wasn't what I was hired to do. I was hired to produce original music. Okay. Underscores. They were Ogilvy at the time was getting away from jingles. They, singing the product name, you know, wasn't cool anymore. They were into interesting underscores. So we were temping. Back then, you know, Hans Zimmer, uh, Moby was like, quote unquote, cool and fresh coming up. So um, it was kind of more, you know, going along the lines of film scoring. Okay. Okay. And away from jingles. You know, we weren't licensing music. Um, and uh, then somewhere around the mid-90s, I'm thinking, it, it, licensing started becoming a little bit more in vogue. Uh, Mitsubishi had a big campaign where they licensed a lot of underground music. I remember a band called Dirty Vegas. Okay. Um, and then the, the big one for me was, uh, and a lot of people, when I was, this is like when I was first in advertising, uh, Volkswagen licensed Nick Drake's Pink Moon. Mm. Nick Drake, I, I always loved. He was kind of this underground, you know, underground cult folky guy. And it was just the perfect song for the perfect commercial. The creative enhanced each other. You couldn't imagine the spot without that song. Now you can't imagine that song without that spot. It was just a perfect marriage of creativity. One supported the other. And then slowly licensing started becoming part of what we do. And then very soon after that, it was kind of like, you know, every project you put two hats on. You look at a picture, commercial. You look at a picture and what's the best creative solution? Do you want the music to drive the spot? Do you want the music to be a message? Do you want the visual to be more powerful than the music? Do you need to score it and say when to feel something or how to feel something? So you kind of approached everything that way. Put me in that situation where a client comes to you, they say Volkswagen, mm-hmm. and they say, we have this ad. Now, is this ad, is, do you know like, okay, it's going to be for this car, right? Like, what, what, do you, what specs do you have that Volkswagen provides you to make that music selection, like well, that I've, whole process. I, I get it from all different sides now because I'm a consultant. I work for agencies. I work for music houses. So I'm not always at arm's length from the client. Right. Sometimes an editor calls me to help him out, find a direction for a cut for his clients. Um, but ideally, at the very beginning, you're getting it from basically your creative team. So the food chain at an agency is... Strategy guy, they're strategy people, and they are absolutely brilliant. They meet with the client. They figure out, you know, who they want to talk to and what they want to say. They put some ideas together. Creative team comes up with ideas. They sell it to the client. Then it goes to production. Okay. Where they figure out how they're going to do it and what they can afford. And ideally, that's the time a music person needs to get involved. Okay. Because then you're helping to, you know, shed a good idea with them. You know, they want to license a song. I mean, it's, it's as simple as if somebody is singing something on Camera is part of the spot. A music person needs to be there. 
Now, are you also given a budget as a music supervisor um, as far as how much money you can spend on a particular record? Yeah, usually. Okay. Usually. I mean, if it's a, you know, if it's an original track, you know what the budget's going to be. If it's a, if there's no money, you're licensing library music. Because I would imagine, though, that it would that this model of licensing mm-hmm. would present a challenge in the sense of it's easier to produce a song in house rather than license it out. Yes, no. Well, yes and no. From a cost standpoint and a creative standpoint, for a musician, absolutely. But there's something called temp track love. What's that? You put a temp track on a cut, people love it. They want to have it. So if you're using it for an underscore, for example, this is the thing a lot of composers and a lot of music producers and even creative people deal with all the time. You're looking at a cut. You put a temp track on that's something you know you can't afford and you can't have, you know, because an editor always wants to cut to something. You want to put everybody on the same page, you'll play a track. If everybody loves it, you can't rip it off. You can't steal somebody else's art. Um, So you're doing something inspired by it. And you're inherently doing something that's not as good as what everybody likes. Okay. I've lived this many times, so that's how I sum it up. You're doing something that's inherently not as good, by definition, as what everybody in the room likes and loves. Got it. So sometimes you need to, you need to deal with that. Get a fresh direction in, change something, or a lot of the times you just wind up buying what they like. So, you know, I've had the pleasure of interviewing, you know, a lot of folks in the space of music supervision, working in different creative houses, and the music is subjective of good music taste, right? Correct. So how, it, from you know, your veteran experience, mm-hmm. like what makes a good music supervisor a good music supervisor? Somebody with good taste, somebody who can reach into their back pocket and pull out something nobody is thinking of, because if they were thinking of it, they wouldn't need you. Mm. Um, I think being able to listen to everybody in the room who are saying different things and come up with something that's going to solve the problem. Also thinking about who you're talking to, who's the audience that's listening to this. Um, if it's a TV show, is it, is it the fans? If it's a commercial, what's the audience you're talking to? Um, commercials, sometimes, you know, you're talking to millennials, but you're, chief creative officer or the chief marketing officer at the agency is a baby boomer. So okay. they, you know, are you, who's your audience? Got it. Okay. That's okay, something okay. you keep in mind more now more than ever. I mean, it's a world of data we live in. So people pay more attention to the end user is as opposed to just a visceral reaction and decision by okay. one person in the food chain. Your first job again was at Ogilvy. Yeah. You later went on to McCann. I went to Bates after that. To Bates after that. Yeah. And you were head of music at Bates? I was head of music at Bates for about seven years. Okay. And then you went on to, you were at McCann for a very long time. I was at McCann for about 10 years. Yeah. So I went from there to McCann. And then you spawned off into entrepreneurship. Yes. And Jaded Melody. Yes. So with your experience being at Bates and being at McCann, why did you make the move to go into entrepreneurship? Uh, it was time in my career to do that. Time to move on. What goes into that? What goes into starting your own company? Well, to be honest with you, um, it wasn't my choice. I needed a new job. Okay. And um, I just kind of, you know, went into reactive mode at the time. I had a couple of couple of kids in elementary school, and I just kind of kept doing what I do. I didn't really think about it too much. It's just, you know, basically be doing the same thing, but where the work came from was different. 
What is the first step for a person stepping into creative entrepreneurship, yes. which is a very different thing? Absolutely. It's a right. totally different frame of mind. Yes. Everything, you've got to totally spin your head around, especially because at that time, you know, I got into my 40s always having a paycheck, you know? Right. And all I was thinking about was the creative solution. You don't have to think about how you're going to make money from a job. I have to think about how much money I have in my budget, how much money I have to save, what I need to come in on. But there was never a thought of like, all right, if I come in here, then I'm only making so much or, you know. Exactly. And where do I sacrifice how much I'm going to make for the creative end product? At that point, I always take a breath and I say, okay, end product comes first or nobody's going to hire me again. Where did you learn entrepreneurship? Like that's something that, you know, how did you develop that skill? How did you learn that being that you were working at different agencies for so long? Wow. I think, I think it probably goes back to my dad. He was an entrepreneur, always had his own business as a dentist. Again, he went to dental school, but nobody taught him how to run a business. So he had to, you know, hang out his shingle and figure it out. Because you know what? Typically, and this is something that I, I should have asked earlier in the interview, is that mentorship is so important. Yeah. You know, um, when you got into this industry, because, you know, now you're a creative entrepreneur yourself. Who was your mentor? How did you learn the ropes? Who was someone who was a major influence on you? I had a bunch of them along the lines. But going back to entrepreneurship, too, it was, it was Gary, my first boss. Gary Chester was an engineer because he, he had his own business within the studio. He was okay. basically a studio owner and an engineer. And his time was billable by the hour, and he used to have to figure out how to make it work. Okay. So okay. I, I watched him hustle with that. That was, that was a great place to learn. Because even now, you, you, you're speaking about now that you're consulting for – um, other companies. Mm-hmm. But what does consulting really in, entail? How do you become a consultant? I think you just have to find work. Instead of getting one work from one person, one paycheck, you figure out who you need to work with. Okay. You go find it. So so, so it, it, it works as if people, different uh, companies come to you and say, hey, Mike, we have this problem. And they call you in to solve the particular problem. Correct. Or I have to go looking for it. So as an entrepreneur, you're always a salesman. You always have to sell for yourself because okay. nobody's going to do it for you. And, you know, hopefully you do a good job and people you work for remember you and call you when they need you. For music projects, the way I do it, it's not like a long-term project. So if I was a record producer, um, you know, or working in that industry, I'd get a job that's good for two or three months. Or uh, my compadres that are freelance um, content producers at agencies, so not just music, but the rest of the production, they go into something and they're, they're, you know, anywhere from two weeks to six months, they're on a project. Okay. The way I do it with music is I'm doing little hits here and there. I'm doing tiny little projects. I'm doing two or three at once. Maybe there's a big one that takes up my space, but it's a lot of little things along the way. So it's always like, uh, you ever see the old plate spinners Yeah. from the Ed Sullivan show? Yeah. yeah. So a lot of it's like that. From the entrepreneurship side, what has been the challenge for you that you didn't expect? I think it's friends not working with you as much. When everybody, anybody leaves a comfy job and becomes a consultant or starts their own thing, you kind of think, yo, I've got all these talented friends that I work with now. Um, They'll come work with me. But it doesn't always happen. You have to prove yourself all over again. You mean friends leaving the companies to come? Yeah. No, friends who are at the company you left yeah. might call you in to work with them. Oh, got it. And, okay. they, and they do, but you know, they're, they're doing their own job. So a lot of people assume that your friends are going to work with you. 
but they're really not in a position to do that. Uh, you got to hustle your way in. What has been the best part about entrepreneurship? Uh, for me, it's having a lot of time with my kids. When I was at McCann and my kids were little, I worked a lot of hours and traveled a lot. So I, I missed quite a few things. So this, let's call it the second half of my kids' childhood where they're, you know, they're older teenagers now. Yeah. Uh, I've been there for a lot more, much more hands-on. And that's just invaluable. Talking about a time in the moment when you know you're in the moment, that's a big one for me. What'd you learn from McCann or working from, you know, a big agency that's helped you today? Oh, goodness. Everything. Uh, I got to work with so many talented people, uh, great creative projects. Um, I learned how to problem solve. A big one was problem solve because there's a lot of pressure on a lot of the things we were working on. MasterCard was a campaign that I had a lot of fun working on, and it was in the priceless campaign years. Oh, with boy. Billy Crowd was the voiceover, and, uh, you know, everything was priceless. Um, that was so much fun. It's probably the most fun I've ever had creatively because you had to think of an idea that kind of tied it all together musically. And there was a lot of room to do that. And, uh, you know, decisions for music were always last minute. We're always cranking right up until the 11th hour. So having to have an, uh, I think one of the valuable things I learned from that campaign is how to have something in your back pocket, even if you never have to use it. So if you walk in and you've got something and you've been through the ropes, you know, everybody loves this. At the last minute, somebody at the top is going to say, now what else you got? Mm -hmm. And you're kind of fucked if you don't have something. So I would always have something in my back pocket. And if they loved where we are, I'm good. I don't need to, I don't need to top it. You know what, Michael, I was uh, watching the Super Bowl uh, with Mike Ladman. And, you know, growing up as a kid, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. And New York City and everything that was on the television screen felt like Mars to me. It felt so far away. It felt like another world that I could never go to, that I could never achieve, that I could never see. Or seeing something that was on television um, just felt like just unreal to me. Like, whoa. Like, it's like going to Mars or something. Yeah. Or, uh, but I was sitting there with Mike Labman. We were sitting there watching uh, the Super Bowl. And he's talking about the different you know, commercials he's worked on that's being played uh, during the Super Bowl. I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I didn't say this to him, but I'm thinking to myself, wow, like that has to be an amazing feeling to be a person who used to watch the Super Bowl just as a kid enjoying it. And now you're seeing your work being displayed on the biggest stage for uh, the advertising world. What was that? What is that like for you to see your work and things you've worked on on that level? Always was, still is. It's just amazing. It's just looking at your craftsmanship and the work you did and appreciating the end result. All the work and all the time and everything you put into it, and then stepping back and watching it go by in 30 seconds, if it's traditional commercial, is just a great feeling. Unless there's something you regret. If there's something you didn't change, that you could have changed, that you didn't speak up about and you regret it, it bugs you every time you see the spot. Are you you allowed to tell me anything that you... Like, ah, like that like, kind of stuck with you. Were you kind of regretted? Like, ah. No. <laughs> nah. Not if anybody's listening. <laughs> oh, you know what? And, and so, Mike, you know, at the, at the end of every show, I ask, you know, every guest that comes on the pod, what were some of the greatest sacrifices you've had to make uh, in, your, in your life to achieve what you have achieved? You're a, a veteran in, in this industry. Wow. A lot of it was time. 
just moments in time that I couldn't be there for. I knew that that's what I had to do. So I've sacrificed a lot of friendships because just like I said, people, when you become an entrepreneur, people, you, you can't assume all your friends are going to work with you. I'm sure that happened to me on the way up. So I got a better job. I had friends that assumed I'd work with them and I wasn't always in the position to. And some people understand, some people don't. So I think I've lost a lot of friendships over the years. And also because I worked so much, friendships outside the world of music, you know, I just didn't put the time in as much anymore. Right. I, I think that's something that, that is always a, a challenge, even for myself. When you move into a, a city in a market like New York City or LA, which is a very industry heavy city, mm-hmm. right? Um, it, it's difficult to sometimes ma- maintain the, a balance. Between having your friends who are like your friends, we're just friends. You know, we can sit and watch the game together. But when you have a shared passion, when you get into the world of, you know, music or entertainment, you have a real passion for it. It's not a job. It's a passion. Absolutely. And then you end up sharing your passion with people who have the same passion and love for it as you do. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I totally agree that it's that difficult balance of trying to find to maintain those friendships of people who love you just because they love you and just, they just want to talk about life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go play golf. Yeah. You know? That's actually, now that you mentioned, it's another interesting part of entrepreneurship because when you're in a position, like, for example, head of music at an ad agency, you're in the position of giving money to a lot of people, handing out nice work to a lot of people who it could be pretty lucrative for them. Yeah. Then when you're not in that position anymore, you're not that person. So- you have to, you realize who are real friends and who are not. Because there are a lot of fake friends in the world of music. There are a lot of fake friends in business. People who really come off as, come off as a real friend. And when you're not in a position to, help to do them. anything for them, they're not a friend anymore. I mean, that's kind of, that's life. But that's another part of entrepreneurship is kind of like sorting that out. You know, I think it just comes down to being cool, plain and simple. You know, what, what advice do you have for, um, for people, you know, who want to get into this world of entertainment and licensing and music that you want to share? Listen to everybody. Um, you've got to be, be yourself and be nice to people all the way up and all the way down. I remember a bass player when I was, back when I was working at the Edison told me, uh, it was like my first week, I was like getting coffee or something. And he said, I got advice for you, kid. Be nice to everybody on the way up because you're going to meet them on the way back down. But, you know, it's kind of true. It's just, you know, you know, be nice to people. Um, people move up at different, different levels. You never know who your assistant is today is someone you're going to need to, you know, want to get work from tomorrow. So it's a role to music in, in the world of sync and production and music supervision and, and music houses. A lot of people switch roles over the years. There've been so many people that used to call on me. Now I call on them. Somebody who's on the label side goes to an agency. Somebody who's at an agency goes to a sync house or goes to a publishing company. So there's definitely a network of people. I think it's got to really pay attention to getting your network, um, getting your foot in the door any way you can is a good thing however you can to meet people interning somewhere, even if you think you're beneath interning um, any entry level job you can get. I think you, a lot of kids come out of school and have an expectation of where they're supposed to be. But I think your only expectation is to get a place to keep learning. You're always learning no matter what you're doing. You're always learning. Wow. Well, Michael Boris, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast, man. 
Pleasure. Real cool dude. Real great energy. Thank you. Thank you. You're that guy. Nice chat. You're that dude. We out of here. All right. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of the Silent Giants podcast and to our special guest, Mike Boris. This interview was edited by Brad Naiman. Episode was mixed by Mark Bird. I want to send a special thank you to Mark Fallows of the Impossible Network podcast for making this interview possible. Lastly, before we get out of here, be sure to check out my other show, OPP. Other People's Podcast is America's number one podcast discovery platform where I interview your favorite podcasters and we learn about the dope shows they created. I'll provide the link in the description of this episode. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Pop bless. Till next time.